second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. This is one of the most important passages in all of the Gospel according to Luke. Some of you will remember that we have been studying in the Gospel of Luke right up uh, to the time of Christmas and uh, uh, during the Christmas lesson. You will remember that we studied about that strange and powerful figure, John the Baptist. Luke seems to be fascinated with John the Baptist and the great message that he brought. He had taken his message from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. He was the one who was to prepare the way of the Lord. And he came doing that with an amazing message. He told people that they had to have a certain social consciousness also, which many people often omit in their discussions of John the Baptist. Uh, now then, uh, Jesus had gone to John and had gone to him to be identified with us by being baptized, for John was baptizing in Jordan. You remember that in Matthew's account of this, John remonstrates with Jesus, uh, saying to him that uh, he should not be baptizing Jesus, but that rather Jesus should be baptizing him. And Jesus said no, uh, that it was right for him to submit to baptism from John so that he would be fulfilling all of the things that were required. And so Jesus was baptized uh, of, of John the Baptist in the Jordan. Now, the, a voice came. Uh, you see, there was the voice of John the Baptist as a testimony and a witness. There was the voice of the Holy Spirit now, the voice of God himself speaking at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And now then, uh, we see another strange witness to who Jesus Christ is. This will be the voice of the devil, and he will be speaking. And the devil has never learned not to overplay his hand. And so he will bear a testimony to Jesus Christ. Because after Jesus is filled uh, with the Holy, the Holy Spirit's anointing there at uh, his baptism, the Spirit, we are told, drives him into the wilderness. Now listen in chapter 4 of Luke. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command these stones that they be made into bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he, that is Satan, brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, 
Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Last week, I, on Sunday morning, was asked to conduct a service for the people that we were with. And uh, to everyone's surprise, everyone came. And I was very glad for that because I got to preach on Zacchaeus and following the service there was one a man who came up to me and told me that he had not set his foot inside a church in 10 full years. And it was a good way for him to begin 1980 uh, to be coming into church. I spent a good bit of that day in trying to read, and, and I finished reading it, a book by Alexander Solzhenitsyn called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. I had been reading this book because uh, I went to Regent College last summer and had the privilege of studying under some people there who are very gifted in relating uh, contemporary literature to uh, uh, the Bible. And one of the professors who had been there teaching the Gospel of John the year before had been Dr. Earl Palmer, who is the distinguished senior minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, and also on the Board of Trustees of Princeton Seminary. Uh, Earl Palmer has written a commentary on the book of Romans and on the Gospel of John and has studies on the Gospel of Luke and Mark. Earl Palmer called attention uh, to this book, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, in such a way that I felt that I had to read it. And so, in reading it, I also learned that I had to go back and I was not able to finish that book, uh, The Brothers Karamazov, uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. I have a more disciplined son than I am, and he read it during the Christmas vacation by making himself read 90 pages a day. And so when we tried to discuss it, we were trying to get at the spiritual values of it, and it's hard to get at the spiritual values and what the professor wants at the same time. I know the students will be glad to hear that admission. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, the two novels have a lot in common. Of course, they're both written by Russians, and some of them say that some uh, people in literature say that the Brothers Karamazov may be the greatest novel ever written. And the important thing that relates to the message that we have today is that the greatest scene which takes place in the Brothers Karamazov takes place when Ivan, there are three brothers, uh, one is named Ivan, one is named Dmitri and uh, uh, one is named Alyoshka. Now, Ivan goes over to France during the period in which uh, communism is going to make its uh, great inroads. Karl Marx uh, was in Paris, and Ivan becomes an atheist, and he is liberated, and so he comes back. And here is his simple brother, uh, Alyoshka, uh, who is a priest who believes the Gospels, and Dimitri is just a sensualist who believes in eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And it's the story of these three brothers. 
But Ivan is determined that he is going to destroy the faith of his simple-minded brother Alyoshka. And so there is a famous lunchroom scene in which Ivan has written a poem. And Ivan's poem uh, is set in a historical setting. Those of you who have read some history know that in Spain there came a terrible period called the Inquisition in which great tortures were inflicted upon the people uh, by the church because there were people who did not uh, go with the church of that day, which was really a travesty of what Jesus Christ taught. Well, the interesting thing about that is that Ivan the Atheist wrote this, this uh, poem of the Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor is quite an interesting person to study. He is an old man, 90 years old. And he is a cardinal. But a thing has happened to him. He has lost all his faith in Jesus Christ and who he was. And Jesus comes back in this legendary scene. Jesus comes back to the city of Seville where the Grand Inquisitor has burned people at the stake because of their simple faith and love and trust in him and because they failed to yield absolute obedience to the church. And the Grand Inquisitor sees him, this Jesus who comes among the people. And it's, it's interesting to, I think it will be interesting to you to see uh, the description that Dostoevsky makes. He, he is putting these words now in Ivan, talking to his brother Alyoshka. He says, he, that is Jesus, came unobserved and he moved about silently, but strangely enough, those who saw him recognized him at once. This might perhaps be the best part of my poem. I mean, if I could explain what it was that made them recognize him. People are drawn to him by some irresistible force. They gathered around him and followed him, and soon there is a crowd and he walks among them in silence with a gentle smile of infinite compassion on his lips. The sun of love burns in his heart. Light, understanding, spiritual power flow from his eyes. He sets people's hearts vibrating with love for him. He holds his hands out to them and blesses them. And just from touching him or even his clothes, healing power flows. An old, old man who has been blind from childhood suddenly cries out to him, Cure me, O Lord, cure me so that I may see you too. And it is as if scales fall from his eyes and the blind man sees him. And the people all weep and kiss the ground on which he walks and the children scatter flowers in his path. And they cry out to him, Hosanna, it is he, he himself. And people keep saying, who else could it be? And he stops on the steps of the cathedral of Seville at a moment when a small white satin coffin is being carried into the church by weeping mourners. In it lies a little girl of seven, the only daughter of a prominent man. She lies there amidst flowers. He will raise your child from the dead, the people shout to the weeping mother. The priest who has come out of the cathedral to meet the procession looks perplexed and frowns. But now the mother... The mother of the dead child throws herself at his feet, screaming to him, if truly it is you, give me back my baby. 
She stretches out her hands to him. The procession stops. They put the coffin down at his feet. He looks down with compassion. And his lips forms the, form the words, Talithi kumi, arise, maiden. And the maid arises and the little girl sits up in her coffin and opens her eyes and smiles and looks around in surprise. She holds the white roses that had been placed in her hands and when they, had lay, when they had laid her in the coffin, there is confusion among the people. But now look at what takes place. Just at this time, the grand inquisitor is coming across the cathedral square. He sees all of this takes pla take place. The little girl rise from the dead. He knits his thick white eyebrows, his eyes flash with ominous fire, and he points his finger and orders his guards to seize him. That is to seize Christ. And he has him taken and placed in prison. And then he comes that night to visit Christ in his cell. And he tells him a terrible thing. He says, when I was a young man, I used to believe all this about you. But you know you were wrong. There, when the great spirit came to you in the wilderness and told you to turn the stones into bread, why didn't you turn them into bread? You could have had the whole world following you. But no, you wouldn't do that. You thought men wanted freedom. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They don't want freedom. What they want is bread. You should have listened to the spirit of destruction. You should have listened to him. Why did you come back? All you have done is create trouble for us. And then he lashes away at Christ. And Christ stands up and kisses the old man on the lips. And the old man, abashed, walks out of the room. Now the interesting thing about this is that Ivan the atheist has written it because he has seen great failure in the church. But what happens is that he has written this to disprove who Jesus is by saying that what really counts in this world is socialism and material good and that Jesus has nothing really to offer and that he is not the Son of God and simple little Alyoshka, his brother, jumps up to his feet and says to his brother, Ivan, he says, but Ivan, you don't understand. What you have done has not disproved Christ. It is proven who he is. And then, Ivan, whose face is red with emotion, is caught, embarrassed, and trapped by his own disparagement of Christ. And then I'll have to let you finish reading the book <laughs> to get the rest of what takes place. But now, this is a very important thing, for here is a a negative testimony to Jesus. You see, Satan comes to him right at the end of these 40 days when he is hungry. And what has he been thinking about? He has been thinking about 
the purpose for which God has brought him into the world, which is to destroy the works of the devil, which is to bring in the kingdom of God. And how will he do it? Satan says, he remembered that there at the Jordan that voice had said that he was the son of God. So Satan says, if thou be the son of God, turn these stones into bread and eat the bread. He could have satisfied his hunger. He could have satisfied the hunger of multitudes of people. And the devil said, if you will build your kingdom as the bread man, then the whole world will follow you. I can never forget the first trip that I ever made to Africa. Uh, flying over water from New York City, from the old uh, airport there, the old International Airport, all the way by a propeller plane that uh, landed on Dakar and then went to Monrovia in Liberia and then to Accra in Ghana. And there in Ghana, I remember Nkrumah was in charge of Ghana. And so, help me, I saw a statue of him. I took a picture of him. He had paraphrased the words of Jesus. Seek ye first the political kingdom he put into stone under his statue, and all things will be added unto you. Precisely what the devil has been saying. All down through these years, seek ye first the political kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. So it's a temptation that he flings to Christ to build his kingdom as the bread man. Now this does not mean for a moment that the church is to abandon its responsibility to the poor. Far, 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 far from that. You know what Jesus said about that? He said it was an, an unpardonable sin not to help those who are hungry and naked and in prison and sick and in need. And he said, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of these, the least you have done it unto me. And he commands us that we are to feed the poor. And we are to be sympathetic with causes that can help. But we must always seek first, not the political kingdom but the kingdom of God. So Satan comes to him with another proposal. In, they're reversed a little bit in Matthew's account, in Luke's account. You know what the devil says to him? Jesus had cited scripture, by the way, when he said, man shall not live by bread alone. And the passage is taken from Deuteronomy, which is based on a passage from Exodus when the children of Israel were hungry and God provided food for them? If you're in God's will, then God will provide for you. Jesus was in God's will there in that time of fasting and prayer, and he knew that God would provide for him. And sometime it will be the lot of God's children to suffer hunger and pain and death and sorrow but God will be with them. There is no easy way. And so Jesus had cited scripture from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone. 
He cited that to Satan, and he wants him to know it, and he wants him to understand it. And then we are told that the devil taketh him up into a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Think of it. All the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. Persia, China, Rome, Athens. All the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said, you've come because your message is supposed to be a worldwide message. Here Satan is really seeing who Jesus is. Satan believes that Jesus is the Son of God. But he wants to trip him up. He, he, he is the father of lies, and he lies here. He says, all this power will I give unto thee and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore will worship me, all shall be thine. Now this is a shortcut. The end justifies the means, is the doctrine of the devil. And that's especially true in the church. And we use it in everyday life. We say, I've got to provide for my children's education. I've got to provide for my family. I've got to have this and I've got to have that. And so if I crunch someone else under my feet, uh, I must remember that business is business. And I'm going to really do a good thing with this money but I get it in a wrong way. When I do that, I have compromised. And when I've compromised and gone against what God's word plainly teaches, it is not done in God's way and it will not be blessed by him. Satan wanted Jesus to take a shortcut. Why don't you compromise with me? And I'll give all these kingdoms to you. But Jesus answers him with the word of God. Can you think of an incident in the life of Jesus in which this actually is hurled up at Jesus? Do you remember one time when he was casting out demons? And the scribes and the Pharisees who were the religious leaders were his enemies and they came to him. And the people were marveling at the signs and the wonders which Jesus did. And do you know what they said about Jesus? They said, he casts out demons because he is in league with the prince of demons. That's how he does it. Jesus had already met that temptation and faced it. And that's when he told them a house divided against itself cannot stand. And if Satan be divided against himself, he cannot stand. That's what he had told a parable the strong man of the house must be bound first, and then you can take his house. So Jesus binds the strong man here. He comes again and tries to take it, but it won't work. Let me say this to young people especially. We have on this campus so many good Christians who know and love the Lord Jesus, whose knowledge of his word humbles me 
and one of the best of them is one of your teachers, many all of your teachers of Bible are that way, but one whom I had the joy of being with in seminary, John Newton. John, I've always loved to tell you the title of his doctoral dissertation because it makes me feel scholarly. I was with him back in those days when he was going through Emory and when he was at Columbia Seminary and graduated and went to Emory to do his PhD. And he did it on the influence of Neoplatonism on some aspects of Augustine's Christology. <laughs> I memorized that. <laughs> John worked hard. But John had gotten out of the Navy when he came to seminary. He had been converted through the ministry of Dr. Manford George Gutsky, whom some of you have heard teach and preach, while Dr. Gutsky taught a Bible class at the North Avenue Church in Atlanta, and John was a student at Georgia Tech. And then when he finished Georgia Tech, he had to go into the Navy and serve out his time in the Navy as a naval officer. Well, very much like some of the predicament I found myself in the other day, he saw that there were some people doing things that he couldn't do. And uh, he had to develop what he calls the doctrine of holy stubbornness. That's a good thing to remember, the doctrine of holy stubbornness. He made up his mind that while other people might drink, that he was not going to be one of the boys and go drink with them. And he just got holy and stubborn about it. So stubborn that they said it's no use to talk to him, he's not going to go do that. Saves you a lot of trouble if you make up your mind ahead of time what kind of person you're going to be and then stick to it. <laughs> I had a good Episcopalian last Sunday. This old guy came in from the hunt, and I was out there reading my Bible, and he was smoking his pipe. He said, you don't hunt on Sunday, do you? I said, no, sir. He took a drag on his pipe. He said, I didn't think you would. <laughs> but he came to church. The world is just dying to see people who will stand up for something they believe. One of my favorite cartoons comes from Charlie Schultz's little Peanuts strip. And Linus one day is, is asked by Lucy what he wants to be when he grows up. And Linus said, I'll tell you what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a fanatic. <laughs> and Lucy said, you want to be a fanatic? Why on earth would you want to be a fanatic? And he said, well, they always seem so interested in what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> now, you caught a point there. I'm not, and there's something there. So develop a doctrine of holy stubbornness. Uh, here, Jesus answers with the word of God again. And Jesus said to Satan, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And there, he took his stand with the word of God. And that makes the big difference. I'll never forget that sweet Corrie Boom when she stood here teaching to us God's word. And went with me over to Appalachian Hall in the afternoon where we have a service for some of the patients. And Corrie, in her own sweet, simple way, tells of a little girl who had asked Jesus to come into her heart and someone said to her, what do you do when Satan comes and knocks at your door? And she said, when Satan comes and knocks at my door, I just send Jesus to the door to answer to the door of my heart. 
And when Jesus opens the door and Satan sees that it's Jesus, he said, excuse me, I have the wrong address. <laughs> and he goes away. Now that's a good thing to remember. When Jesus has come into your heart, send him to the door. And when he goes to the door and answers, Satan will flee. And so Satan flees here. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then he brings him to Jerusalem. This is the great city. And he set him upon a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in thy ways. And in their hand shall, thou bear, shall they bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now then, it would have been a stunt had Jesus gone up to the pinnacle of the temple and jumped off and floated down to the crowds of people below, and they would have all come rushing up. What a wonderful way to begin your testimony. They would have all been around. The TV people would have caught him. But Jesus won't be the stunt man. He will not result to razzle-dazzle tactics. There came a time, you remember, when Herod sent for Jesus because he heard that he worked miracles. That old debauchee who had had John the Baptist slain and his head brought into him on a platter. He sent for Jesus. And when Jesus came into Herod's presence, we are told that Herod had wanted to see him for a long time because he wanted to see him work some miracle. And we are told that Jesus never spoke one single word. He did not utter a syllable to Herod. The silence of God is a tremendous judgment. It's a tremendous judgment. I have up here amongst these papers a very interesting letter written on March the 9th, 1939, from China, from the mission station where Dr. Nelson Bell was serving. He was there with his family. There were a great many things that were taking place. Let me begin reading just a little bit. Up. Beginning on the 28th of February, we had an air raid alarm. Many times throughout the day, the planes uh, were flying over, most of them dropping bombs all around this section and machine gunning people on the road. As I was coming from the clinic, two planes flew quite low and machine gunned people along the road right outside the hospital. The next day, the planes started coming while we were at breakfast, sometimes as many as 10 at a time and the place shook with the detonation of the bombs and the windows rattled. Most of the days, I was at the hospital gate controlling the crowd seeking refuge. With me were Dr. Geezer and Dr. Woods, and it was something of a job. It was a hectic day, and one plane dropped leaflets warning uh, the nationals of third powers to flee. It was not pleasant, but God permitted it to prove to the people here that we were staying not because of the American flags painted on top of the hospital roof, but because we were trusting in Almighty God and the guardian angels he had all around us. Virginia, 
our 11-year-old daughter counted 84 bombs and innumerable bursts of machine gun fire. Strange to say, none of us were nervous or scared in the least. God gave us a sense of complete detachment. He gave us Psalm 91, that same psalm that I just, that Rich and you read together a moment ago. The psalm which the devil quotes to Jesus here. He shall give his angels charge over thee, and they shall keep thee in all thy ways. Well, when you're in God's will, you may claim God's promise and know that God's keeping power is there. But we, we are required to be faithful to him. And Jesus takes the way, the way of humiliation, the way that would lead to the cross, no shortcut for him. And now I close, and I come to this other book with just a brief section from it. One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It's an interesting book. In February 1945, a young captain in the Russian army had written a letter critical of Joseph Stalin to a friend. He was arrested for that and he was placed in a Siberian slave camp for eight years at hard labor and sentenced to three more years in exile. He was not a Christian but an atheist when he went into that prison. But because Dostoevsky was his hero, he writes his own great little novel recounting something of what Dostoevsky does in the Brothers Karamazov. Even the characters have almost the same names. There is this man, Ivan Denisovich, who is in prison, and it's one day in his life in this prison camp, from the time the guards wake them up in the cold morning until reveille and lights out that night, just one day in that life, and all the scenes that pass before them, their hunger, their searching after just little bits of comfort. Well, Ivan Denisovich had gotten some kind of package and had traded for a cigarette, and he wanted a cigarette so bad, and he, he had taken a drag on the cigarette. And there were some Christians, just two Baptist Christians that were there close by, one of them whose name is Alyoshka. And Ivan, not really as a prayer, but when he got that drag on a weed and it relieved him, he turned around and said, thank God. It wasn't so much of a prayer, but Alyoshka, the Christian, used it as an opportunity to bear a Christian testimony to Ivan Denisovich. Alyoshka heard Ivan thank the Lord, and he turned to him and said, Look here, Ivan Denisovich, your soul wants to pray to God, so why don't you let it have its way? Ivan looked at Alyoshka, and his eyes were narrow. They had a light in them, and they were like two candles, and he sighed, I'll tell you why, Alyoshka. Because all these prayers of yours are like the complaints we send to the higher-ups. Either they don't get there or they come back marked rejected. The trouble is, Ivan Denisovich, you don't pray hard enough, and that's why your prayers don't work. You must pray without ceasing. 
And if you have faith and tell the mountain to move, it will move. Ivan grinned and made himself another cigarette and got a light from one of the Estonians. Don't give me that, Alyoshka. I've never seen a mountain move. But come to think of it, I've never seen a mountain either. He was from down around Moscow. They don't have any mountains. And when you and all your Baptists prayed down there in the Caucasus, did you ever see a mountain move? Boy, that's a great line. You got him with that. The poor fellows, he's talking about these Baptists. All they did was pray to God. And were they in anybody's way? And you know what they got for their prayers? I'll tell you what they got. They got 25 years. That's how it is now. 25 years for everybody. But we didn't pray for that, Ivan Denisovich, Alyoshka said. And he came up close to Ivan with his gospels right up to his place, face. And he said, the only thing on this earth that our Lord ordered us to pray for is our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Here he brings the Lord's Prayer in which we prayed today and which I had those men pray last Sunday. Because in that prayer we pray, Thy will be done. And this is what's important. Because when this man tells him, this Ivan Denisovich tells this Christian, the thing is that you can pray as much as you would like, but they won't take one day off your sentence. You'll just have to sit it out every day from reveille to lights out. But Alyoshka is horror-struck, and he said, but we don't pray for a day off our sentences. And then he quotes the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul I am ready not only to be bound, that is to be in prison, but also to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now that's too much for Ivan Denisovich. He takes another puff on his cigarette, blows the smoke in Alyoshka's face, and turns over. But who gets converted? Solzhenitsyn gets converted. He's the one who writes this. Solzhenitsyn gets converted because not of any clever arguments, but someone who is willing to live for Jesus Christ in the tough hardship of life. Christians get cancer just like non-Christians get cancer. Christians have nervous breakdowns and non-Christians have nervous breakdowns. Christians get 25 years and non-Christians get 25 years. But they don't pray that they get their way, they pray that God's will will be done. And when Solzhenitsyn saw this, he later said when he was met by some of those people who had been liberated, three of them came to his door in Switzerland. He said that he realized then that the only free persons in all of that wretched prison camp were those who knew Jesus Christ. And so he gave himself to Jesus Christ. And that incredible figure has come to the West, seeing us with our glut of materialism. And that tremendous speech that he made at Harvard, telling us that we ought to go back to God and to the spiritual values that are there, to the simple faith of the Gospels. If we want something to live by, 
Never in the world have we faced a situation like we're faced with now. So little leadership, so much danger. And in 1980, more than anything else in the world, we need to pray, thy will be done. Thy will be done in Iran, thy will be done in Russia, thy will be done in Afghanistan, thy will be done in my heart. No matter if I don't get well, no matter if I don't get what I want, what I want is your will. This is what Jesus faced when he faced the devil. And what he gave to the world was a life that was yielded, yielded to him. Later, he would go into another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. But he could face there, going to the cross, being alienated from his heavenly Father, becoming sin for us, the one who knew no sin, crying out in dereliction, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? because he yielded himself up as an offering for our sin. But he yielded himself because he had given himself completely to God. I chose this old hymn which I'd learned in the third grade, out of the woods my master went, and he was well content. Out of the woods my master came, content with death and shame. The death and shame would woo him last from under the trees. They drew him last, was on a tree. They slew him last when out of the woods he came. If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, boy, what a great day it would be if today you would surrender everything over to his lordship, no matter what happens, no conditions, just being his. 100% for all of 1980. Pray. And now, O oh God, our Father, we thank you for the lessons which we have looked at this morning, the great thoughts which you have put into our minds and hearts, and pray that you will grant the great ministry of the greater teacher, the Holy Spirit, to follow up in our minds and hearts these lines of thoughts so that we may be yielded to thee, that we may truly be on the Lord's side too. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with us all, both now and forevermore.